church. It is so good to be back here with you. I, uh, you've heard me say this many times. If God hasn't told me and my family that we need to be at Rosebank, I'd be here within a heartbeat. It looks like he's figuring out a way to have me at both places at the same time. So I praise God for that. Honored to be with you at such an exciting time. My gosh, man. You guys are going to be leading the way for the other nine congregations within the city. And I'm so excited to be part of what God is doing here. Amazing Grace. Uh, Pastor Carol sent me her slides uh, from... Um, Let's see, are we, is this thing working? All right, could you stick the next slide for us, please? I just love this definition. I love this definition when I read it. The indwelling presence of God empowering us to do what we could not do without Him. Isn't that just such a beautiful definition of grace? That indwelling presence of the Father that empowers us to do that's impossible. It would be impossible to do it without the grace that empowering grace, that indwelling presence of God. And friends, grace is not passive. There is a transformational power to grace which God wants to transcend into every area of our lives, including the area of finances. And so I'm going to ask you today to go back to school with me if you, were, if you don't mind. Because the problem that I sense many Christians of God is that we try with our limited understanding of grace, we try to take faith and we try and apply it in certain areas. But when we apply it in a direction that God is not wanting to go, guess what? It's like we're swimming against the current. And God's current is much greater than our ability to swim. And so we need to figure out, God, where is your current going? Then we take our faith because that's where God's grace is going. We say, God, we're going to take our faith and we're going to apply it with your current. And we're going to say, God, where are you going to take us? And so we want to look at what God's word says about finances today. And so please bear with me. I promise you, if you persevere to the end, it's not going to be long, but I promise you that there are going to be some nuggets that God is going to go. This is how I want you to run your life. One of the greatest movies that I've ever watched is this movie called Amazing Grace. How many of you have seen it? The guy on the left there is a man called John Newton. He wrote the hymn, the most famous hymn of all times, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And this movie is about John Newton, but primarily about the man called William Wilberforce, the guy on the right hand side. And together, these two men experienced that transforming power of God's grace. They got to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior. But then they said, God, where do you want your grace to take us? And God used these men instrumentally in destroying the commercial practice of slavery. Firstly in the United Kingdom, but ultimately in the entire world. Because you see, folks, when God uses amazing grace, it is a transformational power that does not stop at salvation. It starts at salvation, but it transcends into every single area of our lives. So... If we're going to say, God, how do we apply grace to the area of finances? How do we apply grace to your economic system, the biblical economic system? I think it's important that we understand what God's biblical economic system looks like. And if I could have the next slide, please. If you look at that, the world is dominated by two main systems. This is where I need you to concentrate, all right? Two main systems. For the economists, I apologize in advance. I'm an engineer i got to dumb things right down so that I can understand them. But I'm hopefully some of the other engineers in the room will appreciate that today, all right? So there are two main predominant economic systems that drive and dominate the world today. The one is called? 
capitalism. And the other one is called socialism and in its extreme, communism. And they differ fundamentally on property ownership, the philosophical premise, and guess what? They both have problems. And so the question I want to ask you today, but don't answer it because it's a trick question, is, is God a capitalist or a socialist? If we had our EFF brothers here today, they would be going, God is a socialist. And they'd have all the reasons in the biblical scriptures. And if we had our DA brothers here today, they would say, God is a capitalist. And they'd have all the scriptures to demonstrate why God is a capitalist and a socialist. The answer is that God is neither a capitalist or a socialist because God is God. And God sets his own economic system according to the word of God. But let's understand the differences. Firstly, on property ownership, who owns it under capitalism? I own it. It's mine. I get to decide. I have the title deed. I own the property and I decide what to do with it. Under socialism, it's not, property ownership is not personal. It's we collectively own all the property. In fact, the state owns all the property because no individual can be trusted to own the property. Because individuals are selfish and they're greedy. And we cannot trust them. And that's why the philosophical premise of socialism is because man is greedy, he will hoard all the wealth and therefore the masses, the people, will not benefit. But capitalism says the only way to really get the most number of people to benefit, the way for services to become as cheap as possible is you need to, in, in, you need to get competition going. And the only way you get real competition is you get people that can own property to compete with one another, compete for the best employees, compete for the best products, compete for the best services, so that they can offer the greatest product, and that will bring the costs down for all of us. And that's the only way that you're really going to make sure that the most number of people benefit. But of course, both of these have problems. Socialism destroys the humanity the dignity. It destroys family values. It destroys the, one of the most fundamental principles that God established at the foundation of the world, and that's the freedom to choose. And as a result, because we're all going to end up getting the same, and because man ultimately is sinful and greedy, we tend to do as little as possible because it doesn't really matter. And so inefficiencies are rife. And because there's no incentivization we end up getting systems that are not running as efficiently as God would certainly want them to run. And as a result, there are shortages and people run out and the people as a whole do not benefit. But capitalism, on the other hand, despite the premise that if everything is competitive, we're all going to get best out of it, capitalists will only do as much as they absolutely have to. So they will share as much as they absolutely need to. They'll pay as much as they absolutely have to to get the best people. And if there's an oversupply of people, well, then I can pay my engineers less. And if there's not much competition for my product, well, then I can push up the price more. And so capitalism fails when there isn't enough competition to make sure that everybody stays and works and does what's required. So which one is God? Well, I've already answered that. God is neither a capitalist nor a socialist because ultimately... Property ownership in the kingdom, it's not owned by the individuals. It's not owned by you or me. It's not owned by Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Patrice Motsepe. It's not owned by the state. It all belongs to him. Can you see the fundamental difference? Yeah, while capitalism has some aspects of God and socialism has some aspects of God that we can kind of say, well, that's we see in the Bible. 
they both fundamentally get it wrong when it comes to the fundamental ownership of property. See, I don't own it. You don't own it. The state doesn't own it. God owns it all. And so when you fundamentally get that point of departure wrong, you are automatically on the wrong trajectory and the wrong economic system. But what does God do? God says, even though I own it, I choose to partner with every single individual. I choose to partner with families. When God set up the Garden of Eden and he put Adam and Eve in that garden, the very first thing he told them to do was to tend for it, to care for it, to nurture for it, to look after that garden and all the creatures that he had put in the garden. Why? Because Adam and Eve, man and woman, were made in his image. And he set them up above the rest to say, I want you to govern on my behalf. He didn't say, Adam and Eve, this is your garden. He said, it's mine, but I'm partnering with you. That's what the Word of God calls stewardship. And so what is the kingdom philosophy when it comes to economics? It's simply this. It's I care for it, I nurture it, and I grow it like it belongs to me. But then I don't get confused to think that it's mine. I then distribute it, allocate it, and use it like I have absolutely no rights to the proceeds and the wealth whatsoever. Can you see God? Can you see kingdom economics at play? I look after it like it's mine. I'm going to make sure that I do that because it's mine. We're in partnership with God. But I don't get confused because God, I know it's not mine. I know it's yours. What do you want me to do with it? And that's what kingdom economics is all about. Is there a problem with it? Well, there's a problem when we don't understand God's amazing grace. The problem is when we take our faith and we get confused about who it actually is. The problem is when we get confused about, well, you know, but there's no problem. When we say, God, help us understand what your philosophy is, what your principle is. God, how do we get behind you and your current and apply our faith to see your kingdom established? All right, so that's the first bit. Could I have the next slide, please? When we set up Mbono 25 years ago, we said, God, we want you to show us how we can really build a company that's going to be an impact to this nation. We want you to show us how we can build a company that can build your kingdom. And so what we did not do is we did not say, God, show us which products are going to give us the highest profit margin. We said, Lord, show us which projects can have the greatest economic impact on this nation. One of our projects is the one that I'm currently the most excited about. Is this one called Pico Power. Do you know that there are over 2.5 million households in South Africa without any access to power whatsoever? In Africa, there are over 100 million households without any access to power whatsoever. I partnered up with a group of guys at Wits University that came up with a revolutionary technology that is able to put units into homes that are not connected to any electricity grid and give them the ability to go from basic lighting all the way up to refrigeration and cooking eventually. Now, we could take a strategy that says, okay, I don't need to, I could just go after the top 1 million homes and charge them as much as possible and make a really good business. Or I could say, God, how cheap does this product need to be? How robust does this product need to be so that I can get this into 100 million homes in Africa? And I believe God is more interested in the latter. Yeah. And friends, you know what? That makes good business sense as well. 
Because so what if I only make five rand on each product? If I can get it into a hundred million homes, you can do the math, right? But it means that we start saying, God, what is your plan and purpose for Africa? And I want to tell you, when I start doing that, I start thinking about discipleship models, and I think about how job creation, and I think about 100 million people are going to need, you know, probably about uh, 10,000, or, you know, 100 million are probably going to need about uh, 10 million people to service those 100 million people. Can you think of 10 million jobs in Africa that can be created in this? Friends, we start seeing God at work, amen. And so I want to encourage you, what is God calling you and telling you to do? Because if we think differently, if we can say, God, this is not mine, this is yours. But God, how do you want me to steward? I believe God's going to give us a whole lot more creativity in seeing his kingdom established. Now, I know not everybody in this room um, um, is an entrepreneur or has their own business. But I'm sure that most of us in this room receive some form of income each month. Now, how do we apply these principles of ownership and stewardship to that which we receive on a monthly basis. Now, this, this scripture here is something that I could probably spend four or five weeks on, and I don't have four or five weeks. I've probably only got another 10 or 15 minutes. So I'm going to do the best I can here. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 to 11. Let's read it together. It says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your primary purpose with the income you receive is not to feed yourself, although you will use it to feed yourself. The primary purpose God has given you an income is so that others will produce thanksgiving to God. That others will see what God is doing in your life and they will thank God because they will receive benefits as part of the process of God's blessing in your life. Now, there's so much to the scripture. And as I said, I can't go into all of it, but I want to focus just on two things today. I want to focus on two buckets that I see God wants us to use up income from. There's a bucket called the seed bucket and there's a bucket called the bread bucket. And what are each of these? Well, firstly, next slide, please, friend. Firstly, the seed bucket is that which I invest into the lives of others. In other words, that part of my income that is not for me to consume. It is not for my family's benefit. This is the part that I get and I say, God, how do you want me to sow this into the lives of others? How do you want me to sow this into the kingdom? What's included there? Tithes, offerings, gifts, donations. That which I say, God, I'm going to invest back into the kingdom. One thing I've learned, friends, over the 50 years that I've been alive is that God does not want us to eat our seed. Never, ever eat your seed. If you eat your seed, there is a famine coming down the road. Because seed is not there to be eaten. Seed is there to be sown. The second bucket, friends, is this bucket called the bread bucket. And that's what I spend on myself, what I spend on my family. That which I use for groceries, for houses, for cars, for savings and investments, for school fees, etc. This is the part of our income, friends, that how many of you know requires the greatest amount of stewardship? This is the part of my income when left unchecked, as my income grows, I'm just simply finding myself spending more. Because I'm not paying attention. And this is the one, I, I seldom find myself just tithing more without consciously thinking about it. 
But I consciously don't have to do too much to realize that all of a sudden, my expenses seem to fill what's left in my bank account. Have you noticed that? When I started working many, many years ago, I started earning as a young engineer 3,000 rand a month. I thought I'd hit the jackpot, right? Until I started doing a budget and realizing just how much, you know, I did my 3,000 rand and then SARS took 1,000 just off the top. And I was left with 2,000. And then I said, well, God, thank you that you taught me that tithing is a principle. And so we put the next line item was 300 bucks I'm putting into my tithes. And then I said, God, now we're going to start figuring out how to do the rest. I remember I sat down with an insurance broker the one day. And I was going through my budget with him because I was investing, I don't know, I forget what it was, either an insurance product, a life insurance or an investment product. And I was going through my budget with him one day. And, um, and he looked at it and he went, and all of a sudden his eyes went this big. He said, because he suddenly saw an item there for 300 bucks on tires. And he said, listen, we can take this money and really get you a really nice product. And I just smiled at him and looked at him and I drew a red line across my budget. And I said, there's a discretionary part of my budget and there's a non-discretionary part of my budget. If you can get SARS to give me back some of that thousand bucks, I'll happily give that to you. But this item called tithes and offerings, my wife and I have prayed about it. And we know this is where God wants us to put it. So we can look at the rest. We can look at the one and a half that's left over. And if you can figure out how I can become more efficient there, I'm happy to go into another product. But friends, I want to tell you that God has honored that decision that Belinda and I have made. We have a project right now called Sunbird Energy. In order for us to develop that project, it's going to require a billion dollar investment. Right? That's 15 billion rand. Well, maybe it's 16 billion today. (laughs) But, uh, But folks, you know, that's 5 million times more than the 3,000 rand budget that God gave me when I started working as an engineer. Because the Word of God says when we're faithful with little, He'll make us faithful with much. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a teenager here today and you earn 50 rand a week, what's 50 times 5 million? Be faithful with what God has given you now. He doesn't ask you to be faithful with what you don't have. He asks us to be faithful with what's in our hand right now. And I want to encourage you. God's principles are true. As we are faithful with little, he will entrust more and more and more to each of us. So what does this mean? Recently, we had what is known as the State of the Nation Address and the budget speech. And what does this mean to us as Christians? I see a lot of you taking pictures. I'm happy to make my slides available to you. The only copyright here is that God owns it all, so you can use it. Let me start with some of the more sobering aspects of the budget speech and the State of the Nation Address. Firstly, our economy grew by only 0.3%. Maybe that doesn't mean much to you, but maybe this is an easy way to understand it. We thought... The finance minister was planning on a 1% growth, so it was one-third of what he was expecting. But 0.3 is 10 times less than the 3% that's required if we need to get out of the hole that we're in as a nation. So that's quite sobering. Significantly underperformed. As a result, this means that companies didn't make the profits they thought they were going to make. This means that goods and services didn't sell the way we thought they were going to sell, which means that because profits were down, tax revenues were down. 
And so when the state was expecting to get X amount, they got X minus, which meant their deficit was bigger, which meant they ran at a bigger loss than they were expecting at the end of this year. And as a result, unemployment is at an all-time 29% high. Not all-time, I think it's been higher at some points in the past, but it's certainly the highest it's been in the last 11 years. So what has the minister done? He's been quite prudent, actually. He's done what most of us would do if we looked at our budget and we realized, ah, ends on meeting. He said, okay, I'm going to need to cut costs. And the biggest place he's taken costs is he's saying, I'm going to cut the state wage bill by $160 billion. That's a bold move because the unions are going to be on his case as a result of this. But he said, I've got to start at home. I'm going to make sure that we run our ship more efficiently. If I'm expecting the rest of South Africa to do this, I need to lead by example. And I honor him for making that decision. But despite this cost, he's taken $260 billion out of next year's budget. Despite that, we're still going to be running at a 25% deficit. That means that state expenses are still going to be 25% higher than what he expects to bring in. And the only way you fund that is by going into debt. And so this is the real sobering part, which means that borrowing is going to increase to almost 70% of GDP. Think about it this way. If you are earning 100,000 rand a year, your debt at the bank would be 70,000. 70% of what you're earning in a particular year. And why is that a challenge? The challenge is because for every one rand that the state receives from us through taxes, 15 cents of that is going to go just to cover the interest bill, which means he only has 85 cents available to do productive things with. So that's the sobering aspect. And as a result, people like Moody's, the rating agencies, have been threatening to say, guys, South Africa, get your act together, because if you don't, we're going to need to downgrade you. And you've been hearing about downgrades from investment status to junk status. What does that mean? Well, here's the silver lining, friends. Could I have the next slide, please? How bad is it really? And South Africa is not the first nation to be in this position. 20 to 30 years ago, Mexico, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, South Korea were in dire financial position. Worse than ours, believe it or not. Why was it worse? It was worse because they had debt. Their state-owned entities had a lot of debt, but their debt was in a foreign currency. Our debt, Eskom, 220 billion of debt, but it's 220 billion rands, yeah. not 10 billion dollars. And it's a difference because we have to pay it back in our own currency. That's good news. These countries, their banking systems were poor and not robust. One thing we have in this country are robust banking systems. So again, better off than a lot of they were 20 to 30 years ago. And thirdly, our collateral remains strong because of the Credit Act that was put in place 10, 10 years ago. And so as a result, for those that aren't able to afford, there's not going to be a massive collapse because the value of our property generally is higher than the value of our debts. And so these are, this is good news. Right? What does this mean then? This means that if you were to put a scale where kind of like the US and the UK were one, in other words, they were great nations from a debt perspective, and Mexico and others were 10, right? where would South Africa be? And I know that various economies, economists, not bad. I reckon South Africa probably be around five. 
which is really, really good news if you think about it, because it's nowhere near as disastrous as this. And if we do get downgraded, if we do get downgraded from investment grade to junk status, the good news is we're still going to be at the upper end of junk. <laughs> and that means we'll probably slide from a five to a six. And that's what's called a fallen angel status. Now what happens in a fallen angel status is quite interesting. Because what happens is one group of investors get really nervous and they want out. But another group of investors, especially those that believe in the nation, believe in saying God, hearing God saying stay, they say, hold on. We know it's not as bad as people think because we understand this, right? We understand this stuff here. And some guys are thinking we're a 10. And so what happens is assets get mispriced. There's a mismatch in pricing between assets. And it provides great opportunities for people in private equity and venture capital. So what does this mean for you and I? On the sobering side, growth rates will probably still stay suppressed for a few years. Unemployment rates may remain high for that period of time as well. But just like the Word of God talks about the sons of Issachar, who understood the times, and they knew what Israel needed to do, I believe this is a time for believers. This is a time for the church. This is a time for true believers that are saying, God, we are not going to be distracted by the winds and the waves, but God, we're going to keep our eye on you. We know what you've called us to do as a family. We know what you've called us to do as a church. We know what you've called us to do as a nation. And this is going to provide great opportunities for people that understand the times and that are going to say, God, we're going to keep our trust and our faith in you. So what should our response be? Number one, we refuse to operate in a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And so one thing we will not do is we will not fear. We say, God, we know what the reality is, but we also know that your word says that you have never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. Secondly, folks, we're not going to eat our seed. We're going to say, God, we're not going to be now the ones that are going to all of a sudden readjust our budget and say, God, that seed, consume. Don't do that. Let's not eat our seed because if you eat your seed, you are jeopardizing the years to come. But what I would encourage us all to do, and Belinda and I have done this a number of times in our 25 years of marriage, is to look at that bread, to look at that budget and say, God, in what ways can we be more efficient? At what ways can we be more prudent? God, where can we tighten the belt? What can we do differently? And if there are ways that you can move cut out some of those expenses, save a little bit more, have more cash available, I believe this is going to create an opportunity, a significant opportunity for godly men and godly women to be able to find some of these asset purchase opportunities and build up wealth for the generations to come. I believe, Leon, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are one day going to look back at 2020 and go, Great-grandfather Leon, what a man. The decisions he made back in 2020 is what set us up as a family where we are today. And friends, I believe that God is going to use these opportunities to take men and women that, like the sons of Issachar, can look at this and say, God, what are you telling us to do right now? Where are you telling us to put our money right now? And to be ready to say, God, when those buying opportunities come, 
we're going to be ready to invest for the wealth of our family and the generations to come. The one reason we have this property opportunity on the end of Peter Road, opposite Ramkiki, is because there are certain people that are saying, we don't see the value here anymore. And then there's certain other people that are saying, we see a whole lot of more value in that property than you prepared to let it go for. And it's not a coincidence, friends, that we're getting so much more for 40% less than what we could have got just across the road. And so I want to encourage you folks. When we get our perspective right, when we understand that God owns it all, when we understand that He chooses to partner with us, what a privilege. God chooses to partner with us. And if we then take our faith and say, God... What do I have right now? How am I going to use this right now to build your kingdom? God honors that. God blesses that. And he's going to take us deeper and further. And when we look back on this time, we're going to say, God, thank you for your amazing grace. That we were able to take our faith applied with your grace and see your kingdom established. Amen.